good morning. Happy 4th of July weekend. Um, my name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. I love the song that we just sang. It is based off of Psalm 130, which is a song or a psalm in the Bible that is over 3,000 years old. Um, it is a, a very relevant song. Uh, it's a song that is, uh, I think, actually more relevant now even than it, it was when it was written then. Uh, because it, the reality is, is what we're waiting for, we're closer to that which we are eagerly anticipating, which is his return. Who The one we are waiting for is in some ways present now in the spirit, but one day he will return physically and we are awaiting that day and it's even more relevant now than it was even then. So one of the things that I do love about the Bible um, is its relevance for us right now in all circumstances. A lot of people actually think that Christians are a lot, are, are, are basically all about the Bible, right? And I think that's good, right? You should be about the Bible, right? Like, we do love our Bibles. You should love your Bibles. Praise God for even having a Bible, amen? Um, and we think, we, we know, we, we believe that it's completely true and God-breathed. The Scriptures, the Bible, God's Word. But the reason we believe it isn't... Uh, it, just some ordinary book, the reason we believe it and we trust it, the reason we believe that it stands up to scrutiny isn't just because it stands the test of time and it stands against all the text criticism arguments and all that stuff is true. Dig into it. It's fantastic. It's very interesting. It's fascinating. Um, however, an argument, a debate, never led someone to Jesus. Like, it will clear the weeds off of the path sometimes, right? Especially if you've got people who are saying, oh, it's outdated, it's irrelevant, it's, there's contradictions in there and all this other mess. Like, bring it on. That's not true. Being able to identify those things can often clear the weeds off of the path, but the reality is, is that path leads to a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And so the reason that I believe that the Bible is true, isn't just because of all of the, the scrutiny that it stands up against. It's because I've tasted and I've seen the living God that it points to. Like the scriptures point us and encourage us to interact with God throughout the many facets of life, throughout every aspect of life. It may even shock you to realize that, that personal Bible study um, for the average Christian has only been a thing for the past 250 years or so. What do you think about that? Having a Bible, a personal Bible that is in your uh, grasp, has only been a thing in Christianity, or for the people of God, the average layperson, for like 250 years. You think about that. There, for thousands of years, the spiritual rhythms of life and grace revolved around gathering to hear and sing and memorize the written word and then to go to God and to process and to chew on it with him. You know, praise God for our Bibles. Again, I think you should read it every day and get in. That's why we have these rhythms of grace. But those rhythms uh, uh, that throughout history have taken place for the people of God, involved a lot of prayer and a lot of fasting and practical implementation through generosity to your fellow man. Like that's how you got God's word in you. And it still is today. 
That's the primary rhythms that the society Jesus was speaking to during the Sermon on the Mount actually operated in during the first century. They didn't have a printing press. In order to get the word in you, you had to either memorize it or gather together with someone who was reading it. You didn't have personal handheld Bibles rolling around with them everywhere. And, And again, praise God for the access that we now have to his word through the Protestant Reformation and, and people like Tyndall and all of these, and, and Luther and the, 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 the access that we have now to the scriptures in English, in our language. Praise God for that. But it's easy to take it for granted because that, that easy access to the scriptures has come with that challenge of taking it for granted. And it's often read mechanically. A lot of times people think that when we take the Bible for granted, taking it for granted only means that we're not reading it. That's not true. That is definitely one aspect of it. You can take the access that we have to the Word of God by not reading it, right? That's taking it for granted, just leaving it and let it compile dust. But there's another way that is often implemented, and that is reading it mechanically as if it's just a textbook. As if somehow just reading it or even being around it, it's going to transform us. But hear this, the Bible is not God. It is given to us by God to point us to God. And if you never come to the God the Bible is pointing us to, you're taking it for granted. Because the Bible actually tells us itself, it tells us to take these things, these truths, these principles, take what you're hearing and reading and take it to the Lord through things like prayer and fasting and apply these relational truths at a heart level in aspects like generosity. So Christianity isn't merely an academic exercise or an intellectual ascent. It's inherently spiritual and experiential. 2 Timothy 3 verse 7 says, uh, it's speaking of people in the last days, which I would, we are in the last days. That's a whole other sermon. We can go off on that one, but we're in the last days now. And verse 7 says this. He's talking about this. He says, they are people who are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Now, remember, truth isn't just an idea. Truth is a person, and his name is Jesus. Like intimate knowledge of Jesus happens not by hearing about him, but taking what you're hearing about him and taking it to him and getting to know him in the secret, in the secret places of encounter between just you and God. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Because the Bible tells us to interact with God. I mean, in every facet of life, to intentionally take time to pray and seek Him, to withdraw from the hustle and bustle and busyness of life, and to just seek the face of God. And to seek the heart of God. The Bible tells us, again, to get to know who He is and how He is not just through what someone else has said or what someone else has even written about him, but to get to know him yourself, to apply and process what you've already read and heard through prayer, to experience knowing and being known by him yourself. 
We see this in Jesus' life. He repeatedly withdrew to desolate places to pray. And, and he would even retreat to the wilderness to pray and just even fast and walk with his heavenly Father in and through creation. And so we, we live in a very performance-oriented society, right? Like this is a, a world where it's easy to fall into thinking that your value and your identity is based off of what you bring to the table, how much you know and how much you can show. Right? That's the identity that we often, it's very easy for even Christians to slip into. Sometimes especially Christians because we, need, we feel like the world says you're supposed to be perfect or you're a, quote, hypocrite. Well, we're actually going to look at what hypocrite means this morning. Because it's, it's, all of that stuff is part of the curse of sin that was placed on the earth. Even not just on man. In Genesis 3, we see that God cursed the land. And, and, and it says that we were to toil by the sweat of our brow and the fruit of our labor would then be filled with thorns and thistles. And so even when we do produce fruit, it's never fully satisfying in itself because it's filled with these thorns and thistles. The expected sweet fruit of our labors comes with, in this world, cuts, scratches, wounds even. In this fallen world, the work of our hands is never fully satisfying unless you know Jesus Christ. Outside of Christ, it's just thorns and thistles. It's not really satisfying because our true satisfaction is found in Christ alone. He is the bread of life. Like This is the idea of laboring and cultivating and toiling the land and it produces wheat and then you eat of that wheat through, through bread and it's saying that Jesus himself is the bread of life. Because what makes our labor sweet is knowing that they make much of him. Apart from him, it's just thorns and thistles. It's just a fallen world. This is what Paul meant in Colossians 1.29 when he spoke of our kingdom work. And if you are a citizen of the kingdom, then you work, whether you're a pastor or whatever you do in life, all that we do is for his glory. And we're toiling ultimately for kingdom purposes and his glory. And so this is what Paul means. And he says this in, in Colossians 1.29. It's one of my favorite passages. It says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And so Paul is operating from satisfaction in Christ's work at the cross. The true fruit of human labor is seen in what was produced at the cross. Jesus Christ has provided satisfaction in himself. And so what we see is that Paul is operating, uh, he was operating from satisfaction in Christ's work, not for satisfaction in his own work. It's an important principle. Outside of knowing the grace of God in Christ, though, all this striving is going to seep into and even dominate every aspect of our lives, even your prayer life. This is the human experience. Like when you find yourself stuck in that strive mode, anybody been there? I find myself there often. I have to check myself and go into the Lord with these things. Like when you find yourself just trying to produce, trying to survive, trying to prove, it even affects the way that you then interact with God. Like your prayers become much more about seeking his hand or constantly asking him what you should do rather than seeking his face or his heart. Instead of knowing him, what do our prayers sound like? 
Instead of praising him, instead of being like, God, you're so good. Instead of thanking him, what do our prayers sound like? God, help. God, what do you want me to do? I need direction. And that's living more like a human doing than, as they say, a human being, right? And it's not wrong, hear me, to seek his hand or to ask him what he wants you to do. That's, that's good. We need help, amen? We definitely need his help. All, all of us, believer or unbeliever, Christian or non-Christian, atheist or not, at the end of the day, somebody, at some point, all of us, Everybody cries out to God, either asking him for help or even angry at him that he didn't help in the way that you wanted. Why? Why is that? Because we're tired of the thorns and thistles. This is the state of humanity. At the end of the day, deep down, we know it's not enough. We know that we are not enough. There's, this, there's a singer-songwriter named Jelly Roll. Anybody heard of this guy? <laughs> Jelly Roll. And so despite taking the name of a breakfast pastry, um, he actually wrote a pretty insightful and I'd say honest song called Need a Favor. And this is what he says. He says, I only talk to God when I need a favor. And I only pray when I ain't got a prayer. So who am I to expect a savior if I only talk to God when I need a favor? But God, I need a favor. He cusses a few times in there, and I left that out. But the point is, this is a man who's been so twisted up in the thorns of life that he's only seeking the hand of God, but he's missed the heart of God entirely. This is not the way that a beloved child or a son approaches his heavenly daddy. Just see the difference. I want you to hear it. This is the way that an employee approaches a boss. Expecting him to be apathetic or indifferent. Now again, it's not wrong to seek God's hand. Hear that. It is not wrong to seek God's hand. But the hand of God is extended to us so that we would see his face and seek his heart. Say that again. The hand of God is extended to us so that we would see his face and seek his heart. Because this is who Jesus is. This is, this is who Jesus Christ is for us. Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father. He's even been described as God's right hand of salvation. His mission isn't just to be a helping hand for us, though. He came to bring us to the Father's heart. And we're so distant from His heart as a humanity. We're so distant that we do need a hand of salvation in order to see and be drawn up into the heart of God. But that's exactly what he's done. Now, if you miss this, though, you'll miss the whole purpose of Christ's mission completely. Jesus didn't just come to save us. He came to show us the face and heart of God, to show us what it looks like to live on mission and, and to show us how to enjoy and even cultivate good, true fruit. Like this is why Jesus often withdrew to pray in secret. This is what he was doing. Like he wasn't just asking for help. He was seeking his father's heart. 
Walking through creation with the Creator. Living as humanity was designed and intended to live. But taking it all in, even in the midst of His mission, even in the midst of His work, even in the midst of the toiling and the striving. And yes, Jesus worked. He worked hard. He toiled hard. He strove. By the sweat of His brow, He even sweat blood. And what was His purpose? To present God the Father to humanity and humanity to God His Father. And at the end of His earthly life, what did all of His labors produce in this fallen and even cursed world? At the end of His earthly life, you know what it produced? A crown of thorns. Death. Burial. But... Something greater was cultivated in the secret. More. Something greater was happening in that deep down dark place beyond what could be seen. There's something deeper, something in the secret place. Like Christ's burial wasn't the end. It was just the beginning. Because in the dark, in the tomb, in that place consumed by the earth, in those dark private and secret places, God was doing something glorious. And glory was about to break out. Again, it's in the secret place that God does His most glorious work. And that's where God desires to do His most glorious work in you. In that secret place, in that private place, in that prayer closet, in that place of solitude and even silence. A.W. Tozer wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. Powerful book. And he writes this, he writes, when God created the heavens and the earth, darkness was upon the face of the deep. When the eternal sun became flesh, he was carried for a time in the darkness of the sweet virgin's womb. When he died for the life of the world, it was in the darkness seen by no one at the last. When he arose from the dead, it was, quote, very early in the morning. No one saw him rise. It's as if God were saying, what I am is all that you need, or what I am is all that need matter to you. For there lie your hope and your peace. I will do what I will do, and it will all come to light at last. But how I do it is my secret. Trust me and be not afraid. You see, the invitation that we've all been given in Christ is to come to meet with Him, to meet with the Heavenly Father, even in that secret place. Not to just seek his hand, but to seek his face and his heart in that place that's even often darkened. Where we don't understand it. We don't necessarily feel it. This is where true transformation and renewal actually happens. This is where human reliance and self-sufficiency ends, man. But it's also where faith begins. I mean, this is where God works on our souls. Like It happens not necessarily out in front and in public. This happens in the dark and in the secret and we don't even understand what's going on or feel it necessarily, but we trust and we surrender and we enter in. And it's like a seed. Again, God speaks truths through creation as well. It's like a seed that's fallen to the ground and it gets buried and it gets saturated in water. Like the Holy Spirit saturates our heart. What happens when a seed that's fallen to the ground in the dark and is buried? You know what happens when it gets saturated? It breaks open and its guts spill out. It looks like and feels like death, but it's actually just an exodus. It's just a process of going from death to life, from bondage to the promised land, from slave 
his son. But it doesn't necessarily feel spiritual or happy. It often feels, again, like death. It's simply the process of breaking free from that exterior shell and stretching forth from the inside out towards what is truly nourishing. And that's how we receive and transform into something greater and something fruitful. This is what Christianity is like. Like it's, it's, it's when the shell of our own fleshly desire breaks open and we release control of our ways and we give ourselves over to the deeper surrender and trust to his ways and that seed of faith then bursts forth. But it doesn't normally happen in the lecture hall. Like I'm not expecting all of you to just immediately leave here completely just like a totally new person. That does happen at some level when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, but it's the beginning. And there's a growth. And that growth actually happens best and most in the secret place. In the solitude. In the prayer closet. In the wanting. In the waiting. In the yearning for more of God and the things of God, even when you don't feel it. It happens in the hunger. So what are you hungry for? After this, and you hear these truths and you hear this word and we go back and we just enter into the heat of the day or we enter into the crowds or the busyness of life, are we going to let those thorns choke it out? And, or that seed plucked up by the birds? Or let it get hidden into that secret place where it will burst forth? See, Christianity isn't just about solitude, though. I want you to hear this. In fact, if your walk with Jesus only happens in solitude, then you've missed the heart of God entirely because his heart beats for the unity of his people, right? Like, if you're only praying in private, that's not solitude. That's just isolation, <laughs> okay? So don't take this to an opposite extreme. Like, if you're not seeking the heart uh, of God, like, when you are seeking the heart of God, you're, you're, you're going to catch his heart for his people. And so if you're not seeking the heart of God, then you're just hiding in that place um, away from, not in his great purpose, right? But if, if, hear this, if your walk with Jesus only happens corporately or publicly, if the only time you're praying is when you're at church or before meals in front of people, then you're also missing his heart for you in the secret. And without that, Christianity becomes just like a religious mask that you put on to fit in. Like you may have a religious mask for church, but we may have another mask for work, and then another mask at home with our families, or maybe when we go see our parents or our kids, or, or, or maybe another mask on social media. That's a big one. And guys, this stuff can get exhausting. It can even get confusing. The more masks you wear, the more disconnected you're going to feel. Not just from others, but from also God and even yourself. And so no wonder like, our society struggles with such identity crisis. So we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount this summer, and that was a pretty big intro, but it matters because I want you to see the significance of what Jesus is talking about here when he talks about the secret secret place. We've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, and, and so for the rest of our time, we're going to walk through Matthew ver, uh, chapter 6, verse 1 through 8, and then also skip to verse 16 and 18. And we're going to let Jesus address the masks that we wear with each other, 
the mask we wear with ourselves, and even the mask we wear with God. So he's going to use three spiritual practices as sort of case studies, so to speak, in how to deal with these masks. So the first is actually our giving, which informs our relationship with each other. And then the second masks we wear, or the second case study is prayer, which informs our relationship with God. And then finally, fasting, which is everybody's favorite topic, I know, um, which informs, though, our relationship with ourselves. And so here's what I want you to get this morning if you get nothing else, okay? True identity in Christ is established in the secret places where it's just you and God. True identity in Christ is established in the secret places where it's just you and God. Tim Keller in his book, Jesus the King, put it like this. The Bible says that our real problem is that every one of us is building our identity on something besides Jesus. So look with me, chapter 6, verse 1. We'll dive in here. It says, beware. Say beware. Oh, come on now. You've got to be more ominous than that when the creator of the universe says beware. Say beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So now, time out here. He's just said, if you've been following with us in this series, or you're tracking with this, or if you were in person, remember Jesus is preaching this sermon all at once. 103 verses, three chapters worth of, of the best sermon ever. And, and he preaches this. So just a few moments before he says this, if you back up to chapter 5, verse 16, he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So wait a minute. So you just said, let your light shine so that others can see it, to see your works. And now he's saying, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. What? Which is it? Is, is, Jesus, is this a contradiction? Is Jesus contradicting himself here? No. This drives people that need to have categories in order to externalize their life and just follow and, and get an A. It drives that type of personality crazy. Because Jesus demands that we can't just check out and live by a set of instructions. We must check in and apply wisdom and relational intentionality to everything that we do. It's almost like he cares more about relationship with us than anything else. Because he does. So is he contradicting himself here? No. I think he's actually doing this kind of, he, he does this often on purpose. Like he doesn't say, catch this, he doesn't say, don't practice righteousness. He doesn't even say, don't do good things in front of people. He says, beware. Say, beware. So beware of doing things in order to be seen by people. So he's calling attention to our heart motives because he's about our heart. This is the theme through the whole Sermon on the Mount is your heart. Your heart motive. He's saying, don't be ignorant to the desire you're feeding. Verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do 
in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. He says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. He says, Jesus uses the word hypocrite here in this passage three times. It was a term that referred to actors in Greek plays. And they would typically wear these masks, right? They would wear masks. In fact, they would often wear multiple masks to play different characters. Like the same actor would go off stage to put a different mask on and then play a different character. That's the concept of a hypocrite. And so Jesus is here saying, beware of the mask that comes with giving in order to be praised by men. There's a mask there that disconnects you from your father who sees your heart and his heart for your giving. He wants to align your heart with his heart, but if your motive isn't about aligning with his heart and his heart purpose for the generosity, then you're going to completely miss the point altogether. Like if you're wearing a mask that's just like, well, I'm trying to check a box in order to be uh, uh, seen a certain way, then you're going to miss the gift that he has for you. And you know what the gift he has for you in giving is? Generosity. Hear me. God wants generosity not just from you, but for you. He wants you to connect to his heart and the why behind the what in why we're giving what we're giving to trust in him, not to just check the box of ego in the process. He is trying to uh, uh, create and renew something in us, not just do something through us. Now, some say that the trumpet thing here is Jesus actually making fun of the, these hypocrites. And oftentimes the, the elite or, or rich people or wealthy people, they would um, actually, uh, like, they would come in and it's like nobody walks up to the giving box like, look at me. You know, actually break out trumpets, you know. That's what he's saying. He's, he's kind of, many would say he's making fun of them, that they're acting as if they are blowing trumpets when they're given. But some say he's actually referencing the way that like festivals would sound trumpets and that the, the, the people who are giving their big gifts would utilize that moment to be this explosive like ta-da moment when they're giving. Um, and then still others say that it's got to do with people who have like a lot of coins, like metal coins going into metal coffers. And so they would just kind of like pour it all in and it would be like, clang, 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 clang. It sounds like a trumpet, you know, it's like clang, 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 clang. Everybody sees it and it sounds like a trumpet. So the point though here is that no matter what is actually happening, we know that the point is uh, clear that beware of giving in order to receive men's praises. That's the heart behind it all. Verse 3, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret, in the secret place, will reward you. And see, it's in the secret place, again, where it's all for the glory of God. That's where true transformation happens. Remember that generosity isn't just about what God does through you. It's about what God's doing in you. It's about aligning your heart with his and his heart for others. That's the point of true generosity. Generosity isn't just about fundraising for the church. It's about discipleship. God doesn't simply want generosity from you. Again, he wants generosity for you. This is a part uh, of why God has set up his church the way that he has through things like tithes and offerings. Like notice he doesn't say if you give, he says when you give. Jesus is operating on an assumption that his disciples will in fact give. That's why he says when you give. And he applies the same assumption to things like fasting and prayer. He's going to say when you fast, when you pray, not if. 
And so if it, it, here the, the principle applies to us as a church, not just as individuals, but also corporately. As we gather together as a church, as we are the functional local covenant community, we actually, out of our budget as a church, give more than 10% toward helping ministries that are in need. Organizations that need it in order to engage and embrace those far from God and, and, and help those who are in need of help. We do it in our city and beyond. We talk about this. So we have ministries like Pin Ministry that we support financially. And I want you guys to make sure you're aware that we support and partner People in Need Ministry, which is a great organization that helps in caring for the homeless in our community. We also support the Crisis Pregnancy Center, who engages and embraces mothers with the love of God in Christ and in situations where they're actually considering abortions. Um, we support church planters and missionaries, both in our nation and in the most unreached na nations of the world. And the reason we do all of this, it's not just about giving to the local church, it's about tapping into through the local church. Like when you give to the local church, you're tapping into the universal church because you're giving through to the things that matter to the heart of God. We will always give our first and best to the things that matter, even when it's a little risky, even when it requires faith. That's part of how we've even structured and set up our budget as a church to move forward. And this is part of the principle of tithing, because it's a process that he captures and keeps the heart of our church, the heart of even the corporate and individual, in line with his heart. And his glory, because we then are becoming a part of something much bigger than ourselves, his hands and feet in the world that are captured by his heart and his glory. And so in the process, again, he doesn't just work through us, he works in us. And this is, again, the power of tithes and offerings and the heartbeat behind giving that first and best 10% of our income to the local church and then through the local church. This is, again, that principle of tithing. And so it's not something that we require, in order to belong to our church, I want to emphasize that because it's not something God requires in order to be a Christian, <laughs> right? But in a society that worships money above all things, if you haven't noticed that in America, you're not paying attention, why would we bring anything less than our best? And what does that say about our hearts when we refuse to trust God with our finances? In fact, I think that the last statistic I heard from the Barna Group uh, was that the average Christian in America gives only 2% of their income, which actually makes sense in light of how we tend to worship money. And so I wouldn't be shocked, honestly, to find out that if 2% of those that are giving so little were even truly believers, because Jesus makes it clear later in that his chapter, or in this chapter in the sermon, he's going to say, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he's going to say, you cannot serve God and money. And so there's a liberating aspect to uh, leaning into the principle of generosity here. And so whether you don't give at all or you give only to impress people, he's saying here, both reflect where your heart is with God. And so Jesus says, beware. If your motive is ego, then it's best to not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It's about leaning into the Spirit of God, not letter, the letter of the law, though, okay? The heart of Jesus. Because there may be situations where he's saying, hey, if you're timid or you're fearful, then it might be that you need to let your light shine. 
That's not an ego thing. It's the opposite. So you've got to use discernment and wisdom as we go forward. But he does say, beware, right? It's about your heart. And so it requires sensitivity to the spirit. And so this, again, it applies to all generosity, which applies not just to finances, but time and talent and treasure, which means that it applies to the way we serve as well. For, for, for example, every week, uh, so many people come in and, and, and serve and set up and they put out the chairs and they put out the speakers and they, they, they set up and they tear down and they, uh, we, we put everything in that little closet in the back. It's pretty phenomenal how we've done all this. So many of you do such uh, kingdom work in this to set out flags and signs and engage people. And the reason that we do all of these things isn't so that we can say, look at me. Look how hard I work for God. I'm so godly. In fact, you should be very proud of me. That's not the point. That's not the point. Now, in some ways, it is letting your light shine. So again, we use discernment here, but the reason we do all of these things is because we taught the heart of God. Like This is why we, 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 it's, a, it's an offering. It's an operation of worship. Like we have people who serve in the kids' ministry, scheduling and coordinating and caring for our kids downstairs. Why? Because we caught the heart of God for these children and for this church. And so I even got to serve last week in the 9 a.m. Uh, service with the kids, and it was great. It was awesome. Like those kids are wild. I had the, the elementary class, and it was fun. I mean, I, I wasn't scheduled to preach, so. Um, and the summer was low on kids' ministry volunteers. Hello. Little plug there. Let me see what I did there. So, but, I, but I'm like, okay, well, I wasn't scheduled to preach, and we were low on volunteers anyway, so it was like I took the opportunity, and I went, and it was awesome. Like, we jumped around, and praise God. They were doing, like, they were loving it. Like, we were reading, uh, we looked at 1 Thessalonians 5, and we talked about what it means to thank God in all circumstances and all situations. It was so sweet. Like I got to hear these little hearts talk about the things that they love to talk to God about. Like it was really, really cool. They, they, uh, they, they talked about the things that they, like, like what they thanked God for. And we were talking about um, what, like when they were uh, thankful and when they weren't thankful and how they interacted with God in times where they didn't feel thankful. And it was so sweet. Like when an eight-year-old talks about thanking God for Jesus, even when they don't feel like it. Guys, that's good parenting. Amen? That's good parenting. I, I was like, yes. Like I'm sitting there just listening to these kids and it was so encouraging. But here, here's the thing though. Like what if the only reason I did that was so that I could come and tell you about it? What if the only reason that I did that was so that I could stand up here in front of all of you and be like, ha ha, I'm the pastor and I served in the kids' ministry. I'm so humble. Right? If that's the reason, then you know what? It's not like I'm about to get hit with lightning, but it does mean, yep, there's your reward. Congratulations. And there's no heart change because the reward of the Father is the heart of the Father. Because if you catch his heart for those kids, he changes your heart. That's the reward. And your heart grows closer to him and an experience of him and the things that he loves. 
And so Jesus is saying, watch out. There's a disconnect from my father's heart there. There's a mask we wear. And he wants us to tap into his heart for those kids. And that's why we serve. That's why we give. That's why he served. And that's why he gave. And so also, if you'd like to serve in kids ministry this summer, you can see the next steps table in the back or talk to me or Hannah or anyone uh, that would, can connect you. Um, but hear me. I, I, this is also... What time is it? Yeah. Okay. This is also a, a thing I want to encourage you in. If you're struggling, or not struggling, but you'd like to learn to talk to people about Jesus more, like to even have conversations with people about spiritual things, or even to share the gospel more, the best way to learn that is serving in kids ministry. Because you're going to learn to talk and engage with people about Jesus, and even lead people in prayers of salvation. It's awesome. Because if you can talk to a child about Jesus, I'm telling you, you can talk to a 40-year-old about Jesus. Okay? Okay, time back in. Here we go. Um, the point of it all is that we're leaning into his spirit and connecting with his heart. And that's when our offerings become offerings to him and not for our own reputation. And inevitably, the more you serve in the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God and the things that are close to his heart, the more likely you're going to run up on that thing where your own flesh goes, nobody sees this, nobody cares. Why am I even doing this? Anybody ever been there before? When that happens, it's a moment to go, oh wait, you mean I'm doing this in secret? That's when you start tapping into the heart of God. That's when you start realizing you're not doing it for people. You're doing it for him. That said, I want you to understand, we are so thankful for how much people serve. And when you serve and no one sees. Praise God. You know why? Because it's for him and we love him. And so we're thankful for each other as we do it. And it does matter. It's a sweet aroma to him and it's an acceptable offering and it matters. And so this also applies to prayer as well, not just generosity and time, talent, and treasure, but also in our prayer life. Look at verse 5, Matthew 6, verse 5. It says, and when you pray, not if you pray, but when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrite. Again, those actors in masks. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. You see that? That's the motive. He says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So again, he's addressing the motive of impressing people with prayer. Now, it's not wrong to pray in public. Jesus himself did it. Like his disciples did it. It's, he even is about to teach us how to pray, giving us a model of corporate prayer. Our Father in heaven. Right? When the Holy Spirit hits the disciples, they're praying corporately, even together in a secret place in an upper room. That's, you see that in Acts 2. But I want you to not get this twisted because people who completely toss out the corporate gathering and prayer with others completely miss the spirit of Christ's commandment here. And honestly, it's just another type of mask when you do. Yes, Jesus encourages solitude, but not isolation. And there is a difference. And so here's how Jesus says to combat that desire to just impress people. Verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, he's rewarding you with more of himself and alignment with himself. And Jesus did this all the time. 
Remember, he's introducing and inviting us into his relationship with God, the Father. His father-son relationship. It was a, a place of trust and surrender and even, yes, emotional intimacy. Men, emotional intimacy, sonship. It's a, this is really difficult to comprehend if you're finding comfort in those religious masks. And that leads me to the second type of mask that we wear, which is the mask we wear with God. And part of the reason people shy away from the intimate language that Jesus uses is because they want to keep God at bay. They want to keep him at arm's length because he feels dangerous. It's much more comfortable to keep him at arm's length on an external level, but that because that religious spirit, man, it hates thinking of God as daddy. And it hates thinking of God as bridegroom. It feels awkward because the language of intimacy is the language of vulnerability and being exposed. It has nothing to do with masculinity or femininity. Like the language that's used is that both, here's a shocker for some of you, um, women, you are called sons because you've inherited, there's a sonship. Like I tend to say like your sons and daughters, right? But it's actually that you've been grafted into Christ's sonship, which involves things like inheritance. It has implications of, of eternal value that you're grafted into. And you're like, well, I, I don't really know what it's like to be a son. Well, congratulations, because men don't really know what it's like to be a bride. But that applies too, right? Men, you're the bride of Christ. And so we look beyond those things. And so we, we, we are capturing the intimacy language. That's what it's trying to grasp. And so it's not really got anything to do here with masculinity or femininity and everything to do with insecurity and vulnerability before a holy God that we would resist these things. The only way through this is grace and being poor in spirit. That's the only way into this kind of relationship. And this kind of relationship, church, is what true sonship is about. And I'm going to tell you something. It's what Christianity is about. This is Christianity. Anything less than that is a counterfeit. Knowing and being known completely. Our flesh and egos hate that stuff because deep down we know that we don't have what it takes. And if we're totally known and all those masks are removed, then we're going to be exposed as those who are needy and poor in spirit. Which is right where Jesus wants you. Because he says, and even opened this sermon with saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because like a beloved son, we can crawl up into daddy's lap and rest secure. Not because we're good enough, but because our Abba Father is good enough for us in Christ. To the extent that you reject that invitation is the extent to which you are relying on your own ability to measure up and rejecting His grace. Let Jesus take your masks off. Let Him remove them. Because true love isn't blind. 
True love sees all and loves unconditionally anyway. And this is where true transformation actually happens, is when it's in the light and he sees it and he says, I see all of that and I know that all of that mess, it's not actually who you are because who you are is who I created you to be. Who you truly are is who you are in Christ. Everything else is passing away if you'll let me tell you who you are. And that happens in the secret place. I can't tell you. I can encourage you. And I can point you to him. But only he can do that. And as we'll see, this is the real reward of God the Father. It's more of himself and what he says about you. Look at verse 7. And so when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, now understanding who the Gentiles are is like they were basically the godless people of the day. Um, in this context, there were people who didn't know God. They were essentially pagans, and they were chasing after false gods. In our context, they would be basically atheists or, or people who are chasing after people of different religions who are tra- chasing after false gods, maybe even gods of success. Maybe people praying to the universe in order to manifest the things that they want. We hear this language from like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jim Carrey a lot, and it's like often mixed in with Christianity and some craziness. Many pagan rituals actually involve trying to rouse or wake up sleeping gods by chanting things over and over and over again mindlessly, as if by doing that you'd coerce an otherwise apathetic god to give you what you want. A lot of the prosperity gospel leans into this kind of stuff. But this is how a lot of religious people operate, even under the guise of Christianity. They think that their impressive prayer is going to rouse God from his indifference. Do you see how that misinterprets and and presents a false character of our Heavenly Father? Maybe you say, if you say enough Hail Marys, then you'll get his attention. If you just say it just right, maybe you say enough magical incantations the right way not even knowing what they mean. You just say a certain thing, a phrase, and then your personal version of God or the universe will give you what you want or the powers that be, and then they'll pay attention to you. Uh, sports superstitions are a lot like this. I had a guy that um, I, uh, I played football with, and he, he used to do this stuff all the time. There some socks that he kept in the bottom of his locker, and right before the football game, he would go, and go, whoo! and then run out the door. It was so gross. And he did it every single game. And he was convinced that that was the reason that he played well in the game. And then it was crazy because he would do that and he'd run out and then he'd take a knee with the rest of the team and we'd pray the Lord's Prayer as if like somehow we were invoking the favor of God for us to win rather than the other team across the field. And we didn't know, none of us knew what the Lord's Prayer even meant. Like, we weren't even thinking about it. It was just like magical incantations to try and, like, get the powers that be to support us. It was, it was wild. And it sounds crazy, but this is, like, whether it's the Lord's Prayer or whether it's breathing in random socks, like, it's cra- like or the Hail Mary or even the Protestant version. You guys remember this one? Um, I prayed this when I was little. It was so strange. I think about it now. Remember this? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Anybody pray that? Anybody? That, I, that's like a, I, I pray. Like, no wonder I wanted a nightlight, right? Like, you even think about it, like as a five-year-old, like, good night, mom. Hope I live to see tomorrow. 
right? Like it's, it's kind of, but the point is that Jesus is inviting us to pray to God from the heart as a loving father, like a good protective father. Not, not one who's distant, not one who's begrudging, not one who's like, you, you, do it right or else. Like, it, it, it's a daddy who loves to give good gifts and he's longing for you to simply ask from him. But then again, it begs the question, like, why even do we need to ask? Jesus tells us to ask. Why? Why not, why not just give it to us? Sometimes he does, like praise God for those moments. But the reality is, is he wants us to ask because all good gifts are designed to point us back to him. And if a gift you receive doesn't point you to him, it's not a blessing, it's a curse. Because it points you to something not him. And that's just counterfeit stuff. So he's calling us to pray even in secret without masks because it's all ultimately about fostering and cultivating that relationship with him. And so Jesus says in verse 8, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And then he gives the Lord's Prayer, which we'll hone in on later in the series, in verse 9 through 15. But now let's look at the next type of mask here. We're going to wrap things up with the last mask that we wear, which is the mask we wear with ourselves, which Jesus addresses through the practicing of fasting. Matthew 6, verse 16. And he says, when you fast, notice again, not if you fast, but when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who is in secret will reward you. Again, Jesus isn't saying you're not allowed to let people know when you're fasting or that you're fasting. He's speaking to the heart motive behind it and he's unmasking it so that there's a genuine connection for the motive behind it because he wants to do something in your heart in the midst of it. And so this mask isn't only a mask that we wear in front of others or God. This is a mask that we tend to put on in front of ourselves. Nothing breaks you down like fasting, Right? Like nothing, any, any idea of yourself and how awesome you are just gets gone when you're fasting, right? It's one of the reasons why people don't want to fast because then they fast and all those emotions and all that junk comes up and you start getting hangry and then you see yourself and you're like, oh, God must hate me. And God's like, nope, that's you. And so this is a, a, a part of the ways of this. And, and yes, there are many ways of fasting, but this is ultimately when it talks about fasting, it's not just talking about fasting alcohol or fasting like TV or electronics. It's talking about fasting food here. The essential fundamental element of life. That's what he's saying. And it's not wrong to fast those other things, but just giving you the context here, this is what he's talking about, not eating. And so it's a way of experientially demonstrating that God is your source of nourishment and provision. He is your comfort. He is your source and your ultimate desire, even more than the most basic form of sustenance. He is your comfort food. He is the bread of life. And his kingdom coming and his will and desire is more important to me than anything else, even food, which means it's not going to be easy. Like it means that when you've had a bad day, vegging out on the couch isn't an option. 
Only going to the Lord in prayer, breaking up those rhythms of comfort that we normally have are broken up and it establishes new rhythms that bring us to the true source. Because that's why fasting is always done in the context of prayer. When we fast, we're saying we've tasted of God's goodness and nothing else compares because he's the bread of life, even when your flesh is screaming for pizza. Right? So we're saying we care more about what's true than what we feel. And it strengthens our spirit because when you feed your flesh, your flesh grows. When you feed your spirit, your spirit grows. And so when we feast on his word and his presence instead, that's when a lot of those masks that we've tried to hide behind just fall off. And when they do, we often don't like what we see. And that's like fasting doesn't feel spiritual. It feels super carnal, right? That's kind of the point. Because even though, again, if you're in Christ, you may not like what you see. You might even be disgusted by yourself. And God's going, don't look at yourself. Look at me, because I'm not disgusted by you. I love you. And all that junk isn't who you are. It's just part of the maturation process. And so come to me without masks, just as you are, right where you are, and I'm not going to leave you there. He loves us in all of our maskless need more than we can imagine, no matter whether it, whether it feels like it or not. And fasting helps us to grasp that. Fasting doesn't really feel spiritual. Again, it, makes, it feels hungry. It feels like a headache. It feels like I need some Tylenol. I'm irritable. I'm hangry. I'm achy. I'm broken. And he's like, yeah, now you see yourself. Now come to me. There was a study, uh, a UVA study done about where they, they put a bunch of uh, individual students in a room by themselves alone with just their own thoughts and uh, a little device that would give them this painful electric shock if they touched it. They knew that it would shock them if they touched it, but they got so bored that almost all of them chose the electric shock over being alone with their thoughts. That's telling. I wish I could say that the results there are shocking. <laughs> but I'm actually not surprised, right? Because we are an overindulged, overstimulated people. Fasting and prayer, though, and solitude remove all those masks, and it presents us before the Lord just as we are. When we come to him that way, when we come to him maskless and poor in spirit, listen, he doesn't reject us. He doesn't turn away. He doesn't sneer in disgust. He says gently, as a good father would to his son, come to me, rest in me. Away from the hustle, away from the grind, in the secret. Away from the toiling and striving. Set it all aside. Come to me in the secret place. Like, I, I, know, I know you can't fathom how it's all going to work out. I know you think it's all up to you. I know that you're worried and anxious about many things, Martha. But only one thing matters. Say one thing. Come to Jesus in the secret, and he will give you rest and take care of the rest. Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's about knowing and being known by the Father in the secret. He is our reward. Final quote, closing with this. John Stott, English pastor, 
said, put it like this. He says, it is my conviction that our Heavenly Father says the same to us every day. My dear child, you must always remember who you are. Let's pray.